Hi and welcome to the podcast, you're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Dan Illich, the host of Irrational Fear, of the Irrational Fear podcast, a man who I have infinite amounts of time for. He's one of the first people to give me work when I started doing comedy and uh, he's just consistently a champion of other people. He's always helping people in the industry and helping people in the world, in fact. So what we talked about today was uh, life coaches. We talked about climate change, uh, which he's very passionate about and does a lot of work for. I really enjoyed talking to Dan. I always do. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. If you are not up to date, um, there is an announcement on my Patreon. Uh, It's free to access. You don't have to subscribe to read the announcement about what I'll be doing from mid-October to the end of the year with uh, this podcast and other work that I'm doing. That's patreon.com slash Alice Fraser. As I said, you can read it without supporting it. Uh, If you do support me on Patreon, I am infinitely grateful every day. Genuinely every day, I feel so happy and lucky to have built such a wonderful audience of thoughtful, kind people. And uh, thank you for that. And also thank you if you support me in other ways that are not financial, if you just share my work with your friends or your enemies, or uh, if you follow me on social media, that makes a difference. The numbers of followers on those things, that shouldn't make a difference, but it does make a difference to the kind of work that I get offered and to the kind of opportunities that I have. So Thank you a million times over, and I will talk to you again soon, probably next week. You're having tea with Alice. Hello, who are you and what are you drinking? My name is Daniel Illich, and um, I I purposely made myself some tea to have tea with Alice. Yes. I have it in a very cool mug. It's the Museum of Fishes. Uh, mug that I found in Canoundra uh, oh. at the Museum of Fishes. Now, uh, there's a whole museum there <laughs> uh, with fish fossils. <laughs> is the Museum of Fishes an actual museum or, I mean, Canoundra sounds like a small town, so I'm wondering if it's perhaps Tiny one of town. those places that is just a house that has too much of one thing in it. Oh, that is, is my so favourite clo- kind of museum. It, it's actually in between. <laughs> it's actually like someone's pet project that they've scaled up to be a fairly decent museum to the point where David Attenborough visited it and they've got this grainy VHS tape that they have on loop of David Attenborough visiting back when David Attenborough, you know, was a young man, (laughs) basically saying, this is extraordinary. These, 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 these fish fossils are extraordinary. Oh, he read so, it in a guidebook somewhere and then he arrived and was like, oh, no, it is just a house. I, look, I, I'm i not bagging out the house with too much of one thing in it. I love it. It's one of my favourite things to do when I travel is find these mm. quote-unquote museums. I do think there needs to be another word for what they are because they are just uh, sort of a, a, a collection that's gotten out of control. Yeah, a mausoleum. Uh, <laughs> a um, yeah, a hoarder's delight. Yeah, I, you know, I would pay good money to go into a hoarder's house. Like if you if you said, "Oh, there's a hoarder up on Smith Street, and he's charging five bucks to go visit his house. He's having an open day this weekend." It'll be like, "Oh yeah, I'm definitely going in. I want to I want to see something." Yes, but you have to pay five dollars and bring something with you <laughs> to add to the hoarding. Well, see, I find I think generalized hoarding is I find psychologically distressing. But specific hoarding, if it's just and it's always just you know like all of the Ken dolls, oh, your teaspoons. Oh, uh, yeah. There's a teapot museum in Lura, which is just fab. There was a ABC TV show hosted by a comedian who turned out to be a child sex offender uh, called The Collectors. <laughs> 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 and uh, of course, I can't. I can't even remember this guy's name, which is great. Um, but at the same time, I can. Every time I think about that, I'm like, "What was he collecting?" Actually, don't ever think about that. Just don't ever think about that. I mean, yeah. What drew what drew him to that uh, kind of obsessive collection? I mean, uh, uh, I mean uh, <laughs> this isn't what I expected at this podcast. To be I'm, sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That is all right. What have you been wrestling with of late, Dan? What have you been psychologically going back and forth on? Well, you know, it's it is lockdown now. I have done this amazing thing where over the last couple of years, 
my my mind has gotten a lot better because I've gotten a coach. Does oh. this this is this is sounds like it's very hard for an Australian male to say this because you know you say you've got a coach, you sound like a wanker. You mean like um, a life coach kind of thing. A life coach. Well, life a, a coach for everything. Yeah, a coach for life, business, you know, everything. Not not individual coaches. <laughs> I don't have like a team a team of coach. I don't have a bench of coaches. <laughs> <laughs> so I should, I might do that. That's interesting. But she's been incredibly helpful at helping me unblock a lot of um, problems in my life where I kind of get in the way of things. So like I I will tell myself these stories that oh, I don't have this because of that or, you know, I'm not good enough to do this or the reason why I don't have X is because, you know, there's no way they will let someone like me do X or Y or, or whatever it is. And uh, over the last couple of years, it's been incredibly helpful to meet up with this person once every two weeks and just nitpick at these little strands to kind of unblock myself and get myself out of the way of getting things done. So um, right now it's, you know, you say, what are you wrestling with? And other than the fact that we're in week 11 of lockdown in Sydney, I don't feel, I, don't, I feel better than I've ever felt in a very long time. Like it's one of those, does that feel weird to you? Like does that sound No, weird? I think that's really fascinating and worth worth looking at because as you say, for an Australian male or an Australian of any kind, it's really un, in, it's uncouch, discouraged. It's really <laughs> discouraged. It's really sort of subtly frowned upon to imply that you might need help, particularly help that is in the psychological realm. That is, yeah. uh, you, you know, that then there's something even even for the women. These are these are things that you should be able to do for yourself or isn't that what friends are for? Yeah. Also, like I think because, you know, you and me, Alice, we are entrepreneurs. We have a business and our business is us. You know, it's it's in like we we run ourselves like a business and we try to figure out. But ultimately, you and me, Alice, we're just we're just sacks of blood and bone and <laughs> we are not infinitely scalable <laughs> like a real business is. And so we need help to talk to people to try to figure out, you know, you know, if our emotions and stuff get in the way of actually getting business done. And, you know, so uh, uh, the coach has been really helpful in kind of allowing me to separate me from what we do, you know, like to separate Dan from Daniel, if, if, if you want to make that distinction. So I can, I can kind of operate thinking more about, more strategically about um, how I go about trying to create things and get things done. Well, I think, that, I think that's fascinating and, and has like, is a broader implication because we are not the only people who are businesses it, at the <laughs> moment, particularly with lockdown, particularly with this acceleration yeah. of the features of technology that has happened during the pandemic there are so many people who are presenting a version of themselves online and it, and to to some people almost exclusively presenting a version of themselves online they're performing themselves their selfhood through through this medium what i want to know is those people who have uh, who rely on traveling to italy to post pictures about how wonderful their holidays are what are they doing this year like what are they- what are going into the B-roll. Whose main personality function is here I am in a beautiful place. What are you doing? Are you, you're not in a beautiful place anymore. Well, I, like This is the, the thing, though. If you're only ever presenting this, this version of yourself or, uh, rather, without any kind of counterbalancing experiences of the real version of yourself, which is probably a little bit less um, impressive and has different angles to it and some of them aren't very flattering and has different uh, moods yeah. to it and some of them aren't very congruent with your expressed political affiliations and and so on and so forth. But you've just taken away the ability to have these kind of measuring influences where like you were a bit of a dick on a bus and had to come to terms with the fact that you were the dick. <laughs> you don't have that. People are, people are going to believe their own projection that they are the person mm. who they are when they are presenting themselves. On the bus thing, yeah. uh, I've here's a here's the thing I'll share with you. Like I feel like because I, I'm a person with a small profile, uh, I live in an extra special panopticon where if I am on a bus, 
and I'm really tired, Alice, and I don't particularly want to stand up for someone. <laughs> I paid my ticket. I'm, you know, I, I will stand up because <laughs> because of, because of the part of the privilege of having a profile is that somebody will say, "Oh well, Dan Ellis didn't stand up for that person." <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, this is super interesting. How might like that's a really sort of positive form of self policing, and I think, I think to a certain extent, you have a moderating influence of like small town life. I think people people behave better if they think that they're going to be recognised and it's going to come back on them. Totally, of course. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, at the same time, yeah, I just I just don't know what it's going to do to people, or what's what it's already what it already has done to people that we'll see over the next five or ten years. And, yeah, there's going to be support groups um, of people who are like, hi, um, my name's James, my main personality trait was was travelling into Europe and taking photos, now I can't do that. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> welcome, James, you know. <laughs> Oh yeah. Here's a green screen. Here it would take here's a green screen and some costumes. Uh please go and knock yourself out. I mean, that's not joking. There are people who have been caught using uh technological magic to create some of these. Right. right. I, and I understand it. I mean, hey, you know, like if, if you're an influencer and that's your job to be in these places and you're not posting to a timeline, then uh, you know, I get it. Pump those posts through. My favourite thing is seeing people set up those photos in real life because they look so weird. And in that moment they've made this calculation that your presence and disapproving vision of them or whatever, the fact that they're standing in the way of you posing in a bikini, is less important than the million people that they're going to reach with this photograph. And you know what? They're probably right. Uh, <laughs> I, I I live um in Bondi Beach in Sydney, and there's a beautiful walk here called the Coastal Walk, and I often walk it. And along the Coastal Walk, um, you will see lots of people in bikinis doing photos of of themselves in amazing positions, and it is really funny. You can easily see three a day. Uh, in the same hour, doing it in different locations on the walk. And I think there's an Instagram account that should be dedicated to taking photos of people trying to get the ab- the absolute angle of <laughs> the uh, absolute there perfect is, angle. And it's called Boyfriends of Instagram. Oh, uh, right, yeah. <laughs> and you need, to, you need to subscribe to that immediately if you're not already subscribed. I mean, you're walking along the coast every day, right? You live by the water. Um, yeah as do I, and you are currently engaged in this big climate change project. Um, how does that feel? Um, in terms of wrestling with something? Because I think for so many of well, our generation, yeah, well, you feel very helpless. You know what, there's a lot of uh, the, the wrestling with something in terms of climate change is something I do professionally and I think a lot I think about it a lot, like my desk here is like filled with books about climate change, many of that I've read. Um, and the striking thing about climate change and living life in the in this year we live it, with all the accoutrements of uh, of a modern life, is that there's a huge hypocrisy in everything we do. Mm. And that's that's the hardest thing for me at the moment is trying to wrestle with like. Yes, carbon emissions need to come down, but, you know, if I get an electric car, then uh, I'm just contributing to the loss of space for First Nations people or different parts around the world whose land is who they're being evicted off their land so that they can, so people can mine lithium. And so that's, that's you know, that like there's this, there is this conundrum with everything you do to try and abate climate change. And oh. often... Yes well, not, and obviously no. not everything. Not, well, this not everything. is the thing. This is the thing. Sorry, I will let you finish your point. Um, but one of the things that I was thinking about is like, you know, one of the big crutches of climate um, fatalism, I think, is this idea that individuals are individual, individual consumers are responsible for mm. climate change in this way, in this, oh, if I buy this or if I don't buy this. When in well, fact, it's these massive policy decisions that need to be made that are going to make any yeah. kind of difference. But they, but they, so the massive policies can make it, will make a difference when they come in. At the moment, domestic emissions make up about 40% of our 
total emissions. So that's a lot. That's everyone's houses, everyone's commercial spaces. That that makes up forty percent. So by if everyone instantly got rid of their gas cars, got electric cars, got rid of their gas heaters, got rid of their gas stovetops, um, instead of having air conditioning, got heat pumps, uh, put solar on their roofs, and found ways to store that solar in their houses or in their cars or put back out to the grid, then that's a that's that's almost half of the emissions of the country looked after. So it's you know while we can say we can say oh yes you know we should actually be worried about the fossil fuel footprint or the industry's footprint um as well uh or that you know the carbon the notion of the carbon footprint was invented by bp so to put the onus on the individual rather than themselves you know we can say that and that's fine but when we look at our actual carbon footprint yeah it actually kind of does matter and anything that we do uh Anything that we do can make a difference. And if you are lucky enough, here's the thing though, if you are lucky enough to be a homeowner, you can get on this bandwagon straight away and fix a lot of the stuff. If you are like me and a renter and have all the intent to live in a, a fantastical, sustainable world, there's only so much emailing of my landlord that I can do to say, you know, we should really get some PV in here. You know, really this gas has got to go, you know, like that's not going to happen. Um, so like, it's such a weird thing where like, I, I'm like, I'm turning 40 soon. I don't own a house. I have half a house deposit by the time I turn uh, 45, it'll almost be a full deposit for a house in the nineties. So it'll, it's like, <laughs> uh, I, to get on this crazy, to kind of think about like a domestic space as a space that is a major polluter and then get, get into a house to refit that house to be less emissions intensive. That's a big ask. And I, anyone who is already a homeowner, this is like the first thing you should do. Like I, I, I like everything you buy now, be that your phone or your or car or anything has an inbuilt uh, has what they call committed emissions. Um, so, so a car, for instance, that lasts 30 years. You, you buy it off a lot, you drive it for 30 years. That that thing has a committed emissions for 30 years. So what you want to be doing is you're trying to, any, anytime you kind of buy one of these things, you need to retire it as quickly as you can um, so you can get something that has zero emissions. And that's with every appliance, you know, fridges, anything, you know. So it's it's a real, it's, it's tricky. See, it it's is tricky. tricky. And I, I, I sort of disagree with you. I mean, I agree with you. Obviously, the numbers are there in terms of this 40% domestic emissions thing. But I, yeah. I think the way to change that is not individual hearts and minds. It is regulation. And oh, sticking no, no. to the regulations when they happen. For example, the biggest tragedy in recent politics in Australia was Julia Gillard's carbon tax, which was to put a tax on carbon that people then rejected yeah. because you the know mining what? industry and, and- said it was going to hit their bottom line. And the thing that annoys me about that so is that it was back. so successful. It was so going, good. it was driving down emissions in Australia uh, for the three years it was in, three or four years it was in. Um, and that those that emission drop is so significant that overall on a 15-year timeline, it looks like Australia's emissions have gone down. And here's the thing, is that the current government is claiming success for that emissions drop despite them repealing that very initiative so it's this it's this weird thing like well you know over you know since 2005 our emissions have dropped this this amount but that amount only dropped because back when you weren't in power there was a system that was dropping those emissions that you're now claiming you did all the work for which is ridiculous so that really annoys me so this is so here's my here's my point Alice is that I think that yes policy is great and policy good policy will mean that we will have well, when i say policy reduction. i also mean regulation so you cannot when you go to harvey norman to buy a toaster you cannot buy a shitty toaster because <laughs> shitty toasters are so much more expensive you know that's the kind of the kind of where smoking becomes expensive or or other things that we acknowledge are damaging to us those kind of things make consumer choice irrelevant so you don't need to re- you don't need to rely on individual people's moral goodness and resilience and willpower <laughs> and 
financial, you know, flexibility to buy the slightly more expensive eco-friendly thing, make those decisions 10 times a day. You just need to have this thing of like, well, that's A, shitter and B, more expensive because it's, you know, because of the regulation that's in place. And I love that, Alice, but you talk to any liberal, they'll say, well, you're getting rid of choice. You know, you're getting rid of the freedom of choice. I I lose the freedom of choice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. If you present me with six washing machines, I don't care or know about any of them. I don't, I just, I resent being asked to make these choices a lot of the time. I I want three options and they have distinct features and I'll pick one of those three. Okay. I think, I think having great, I think, when we're talking about policy and having great uh, environmental policy is really important. And I think that's really, that's really important. I think having stuff like carbon tax is really important. Uh, A market system for emissions is really important. Um, But also we're not going to get there because we have current, in our Westminster system, the two major parties, Liberal and Labor, are so indebted to fossil fuel lobbying and the industry that they have to concede things to those industries all the time there is a pathway through this though we have in the short term Alice we have this election coming up and this is something we spoke we spoke about I talk about this all the time but you know we happen to speak about this conversation we had this conversation on my podcast last (laughs) um there is an election coming up and the the pathway forward is to get a few key independents who are who back climate action in meaningful ways and have a really strong bench who who are demanding serious climate action uh, sorry a strong cross bench who are demanding serious climate action and then stealing a couple of those seats from labor and liberals so the so that whoever is in power uh has to govern from minority and deal with this cross bench because the cross bench are largely independent and they aren't affected by donations from the fossil fuel industry. So there's campaigns at the moment where, and there are kind of four key seats that are kind of up for grabs in terms of which kind of uh, electorates are really interested in this kind of messaging, uh, a Zali Stegall kind of-esque sort of campaign to oust the majors and from Bear in mind that a significant number of my listeners are in the UK and the US, so you want to provide yeah. a reference point for so that. Zali Stegall, a fascinating woman, kind of conservative barrister slash famous Olympian in the past, ousted a a sitting prime minister from his own seat in Australia, which is pretty amazing effort. The and you can do that in Australia. Like the prime minister is someone who isn't like a president; they're not an executive officer. They 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 are just a member of parliament, like everybody else. And, uh, and Zali ran an incredible campaign. Well, first there was a campaign. And, and a vote Tony out campaign that garnered enough. Um, so Tony Abbott, so for people who don't know, Tony <laughs> Abbott is, this, is, is a troglodyte of a, of a man, like so backward in so many ways. And uh, he was a constant embarrassment to not only Australia, but to his own party and to, to anybody who he represents, i.e. the people of Warringah, beachside suburb in Sydney. So this, this, there was this momentum to get him out. So they got hundreds and hundreds of people to sign on to petitions to join this movement. And then they found Zali. Zali was like, oh, there seems to be this movement here. Maybe I can, I can run. I can be the candidate. And so when she decided to run, there was all of a sudden hundreds of people behind her to get Tony out. And that's exactly what she did. And as a result, Tony's out. Now she's kind of fighting for that seat again. She'll probably get again. Uh, and but people have seen this, seen this amazing thing happen in Warringah in this seat and want to replicate it elsewhere. And right now there is this incredible um, survey that's been done where every major electorate, everybody wants more climate action. And what each party is asking for, is offering, isn't climate action. So Liberal and Labor are not offering any kind of meaningful climate action. Um, Labor say they are, but they're not. Um, the Greens, of course, are, and they've got just plans, but the problem is Greens have a political problem in that people don't trust the Greens. So uh, this is a really fascinating moment where you could find conservative independents stepping into conservative seats who may be conservative socially um, but really bullish on climate action. 
And it's really fascinating to see that this this the moment. The idea right that now, conservatives ought to be against climate action when conservation <laughs> is essential yeah. to the idea of, of what they want is not change. You know, well, co- co- conservatives are, are all about cons- conserving wealth. Yeah, but the everyone's long term interests is in the wealth of our environment, is in the health of our environment. So conservatives should by that nature. Yeah, what's the point of having a yacht if you can't look at nice fish off the side of your yacht? If it's just dead bodies and garbage, then no one likes a yacht. Well, then it's great to have a yacht because then you can sail away from the dead bodies and garbage. (laughs) It'll be full of of dead bodies and garbage. You'll like this. You love a Michael Fraser story, (laughs) Professor Michael Fraser story. He went to, he was approached by our local uh, candidate or current, current incumbent uh, uh-huh. person in the suburb that we live who said, you know, what? what's the most important thing to you? Sort of in one of these street things occasionally they go around and he ask d- He did a street, street thing? Yeah, and uh, Dad said, I, w- I want action on climate change. And uh, Mr Sharma said, well, do you want um, zero by, you know, he, he basically did the slogans at him, do you want this version or this version? And Dad was like, I don't want talking points. I don't care what either of those things are. I just want yeah. concrete action and a plan. And it, <laughs> because, you know, the, my dad is very good at being sort of, how would you say, pleasantly disagreeable. <laughs> he doesn't let people get away with, like, changing the terms of the discussion. That's good. Well, he's a he's a law professor, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. So he was just like, I, I don't know what either of those things mean and I don't care. I'm not interested in your talking points. I want a concrete yeah. action plan. And uh, Mr Sharma looked extremely boggled. Well, okay, so I saw Mr Sharma probably three years ago in Westfield uh, and he was doing one of those things too. And I at that, at that point I had just been deported off Manus Island for a comedy sketch I made and and. Uh, and I I also had broken my or busted my ankle, so I was in a moon boot. So I wasn't kind of I wasn't looking like a presentable person. I was look, looking more like a hobo who'd come off the street. And I said, so I said, Dave, there's two things that I am really ashamed about being Australian. That is our our offshore detention um, programs and climate change. He said, well, offshore detention that that's pretty much over. You know, we're we're, we're finishing that. And I'm like, I I was I was in Manus Island. <laughs> I was in Manus Island two weeks ago. Didn't look like it was finished to me. It looked like there was a whole bunch of people we kept there and they're stranded. It's like, oh, well, you know, they can, they can go anywhere if they want. They can go back home. And I'm like, well, that's not exactly the point I'm making here. I'm saying is, <laughs> anyway, so I had that conversation with him. And then I said on climate change, we need to do much more. We said, we're doing much, we're doing better than anyone else. I was like, that's not true. I I know about this stuff. We are not doing, we need to set stronger targets. So we've, we're going to meet, we're going to meet our targets. I'm like, our targets are not real targets. And I went through the whole Kyoto thing about how we've created these fake targets and how these targets are meaningless and how we are the bane of uh, of climate existence. Well, how did you know that? And I was like, I was at the Paris climate talks. I was in Paris. Like what for the, cl- I was at the, I was at the talks. I was there. You know, I, you know, I know these things. And like, and I got really angry and I said, and he was just like, well, we're doing the best we can. I'm like, we're not doing, <laughs> we're not doing good enough. But I, I, I kind of, the whole notion of net zero by 2050, which was what, what I was thinking about three years ago, was completely foreign to him. And I said, when you go to net zero by 2050, and he's like, well, that's impossible. And I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> it's, like, it's just like, I couldn't believe I was having this conversation with the elected person who represents me in my electorate it killed me yeah it's so it's so frustrating as well because these kind of like the central problem i think in australian politics is that the people who do politics in australia are the people who did university politics yeah they are the people who've wanted to be politicians since the beginning and so they begin by becoming indebted to the system. They work within the system. They want to get power within the system as it as it stands, and as a result, they they it's that it's that thing of of uh, they started making law students in Australia do double degrees because if you just had a law degree straight out of school and you went into the law straight through like that, you very often didn't have any kind of life experience. 
And so, <laughs> right, yeah. so these people are playing games against one another. They're trying to score points off one another. This, this, oh, we're meeting our targets. They've just shifted the goalposts and, and oh, look, at look, we're doing better than anyone on these metrics that we have, you know, and, and they're so Invented, yeah. smug because they're winning. They, they, they've ticked yeah. this box. That is so it. That it, that it, I felt like I was arguing someone, I felt like I was arguing to someone who had no frame of reference for what was actually happening. It yeah. was. If the project is so build me a house, they've brought you a box and gone, technically, this is a house. Because if you define a house as four walls and a roof, and you've just gone. <laughs> yeah, I know. It is, technically, it is so, isn't to the point. That is exactly the same. That is exactly, you're exactly right. Like, you know, well, you know, um, Manus Island, they're free to go. I was there two weeks ago. <laughs> It felt good to be able to say, well, actually, I was there. I was there two weeks ago, Dave. I got deported. I got deported from Papua New Guinea because I was making satire about your fucking policy. (laughs) Uh, I got death threats about a sketch I did about Manus Island. Hooray! At one point. It's the only time I've gotten, like, proper, proper death threats. I can only assume it's, um, it's either from the far right or someone with a teardrop in their Twitter name. (laughs) I'm scared of the the far right and I'm scared of the far left. They're they're both scary. They are both scary. And it's because they treat you as a proxy for some group that they hate rather than as a human being. But uh, actually it was disgruntled Papua New Guineans who didn't like me. Oh, Yeah, it was a a sketch about um, sort of based on a holiday advertisement for Manus Island. Manus Island, yeah. And talking about, you know, endemic cholera and various things that are illegal in that jurisdiction and basically pretending to be selling that as a holiday location while in fact drawing attention to the fact that our our refugees who are our moral responsibility would be being kept in quite a dangerous place. Um, Yeah. And so there were some people who thought I was insulting their homeland, which, to be fair, I was. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Well, as someone who was there, as someone who was there, uh, I missed the cholera. I, I, I missed it. I didn't get it. So you know, it wasn't mine. Wasn't my experience. Look, I can imagine Manus Island would be a really nice place if you're going scuba diving, and that was it. Uh, but anything else, it's not a. It's not a great place. No, and and certainly, I think any place is not a great place if you are trapped in it. Uh, oh yeah, these guys, these, these poor guys. They, Thankfully, like the the place is shut down now, and all those people are <clears throat> in Port Moresby trying to go to other countries. So, I made a sketch. I made like a "Weather Bloody Hell Are You" parody, um, and uh, the five guys that were in it, who were all detainees, um, they are now spread all over the globe and resettled in other countries. So, United States, Finland. Uh, one of the guys, Aziz Abdul, won like a, a major humanitarian prize at the UN and, and got special compensation to, to to leave Manus Island to go to get it in Switzerland. And then when he came back, uh, he got uh, asylum in Switzerland. So he ended up going back to Switzerland and resettling in Switzerland. So it's like all the like five. That's the kind of person you want in your country. <laughs> yeah, like a human rights or human rights prize winner. Yeah, and then. Uh, while I was there, I interviewed Baruz Bachani, the the author who wrote an incredible book about his journey from his Kurdish homeland to um, to Manus Island, and his 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 stories are incredible in that book, and also extremely funny. There's like really hilarious things in in this book about camp life. Uh, it's worth reading. It's called um, No No No. I can't remember the name of it. I'll I'll find it. Anyway, so he signed his book. I had my I had my copy. No band but the mountains, I think. Um, and I had my copy of that book on me. And he he came with me to the airport as I was being deported and he signed it. And uh, what's great about it was he signed it and the day I left was Australia Day. <laughs> so he signed it January 26th. It was like, on this Australia Day, it's great to be able to sign your book <laughs> in the Manus Island departure lounge. You know? <laughs> oh, it's so heartbreaking. Um, but he's in New Zealand now, isn't he? Yeah, he's in New Zealand now. He's a he's like an associate professor at, at um, I think Christchurch University. Yeah, he's um he's killing it. It's uh yeah, we live in interesting times, Dan Elliott. And all these all those all those Manus or not the Manus people, all those Tampa people who 
from early days, 1997, when Tampa happened, they all grew up in New Zealand and they are living full, rich, professional lives at the tops of their games. Like the fact that, you know, John Howard can say, no, I don't want these, these 20 people to come to Australia and then set off a decade and a half worth of torment for thousands more people and the people that uh, kind of kicked it all off the, 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 from the Tampa boat are now incredible individuals who have their own lives and family and just living living life in New Zealand. Just anyway, so so the thing I, I always just- think about about this is because I live near the mouth of Sydney Harbour, um, and occasionally I'll catch a ferry in to back in the times when you could catch a ferry uh, into the city uh, to sit in a tea well. shop and do some work. That was one of my favourite things to do because it takes a you know forty five minutes to an hour on the bus to get into the city. It takes fifteen minutes on the ferry, and it's like one of the most beautiful places in the world. <laughs> There's Sydney Harbour, you know, you go past these yachts and you're like, screw you, I'm, you know, only paying a couple of dollars for this public transport in. Um, but yeah. you go past uh, Fort Denison, which is a sandstone island. It was built, it's built on this island, it's a very small island that's been built into a fort out of that kind of very classic honey-coloured Sydney sandstone. And they used to have hanged prisoners on display yeah. as you came into the harbour as a kind of a warning of people coming in, this is what we do to sinners or to wrongdoers, <laughs> to criminals. And in that exact way, that's how we are using our asylum seekers as this kind of um, display of cruelty or this this instrument, using people instrumentally is always morally wrong, but we are using them in that way as a display of what you shouldn't try because this is what will happen to you, this terrible inhumane thing. And they're doing that on purpose. They're not pretending yeah. it's not inhumane. No, no, yeah. Well, they what, what both sides of politics do is they say, well, look at all the countless lives we've saved who didn't drown at sea. Look at all the things that didn't happen because this thing exists. So they're using the, the, the drowning at sea as a, as a, as a reason to keep those those places existing. Yeah. And that's the those who walk away from Omelas question, right? That uh, Ursula Le Guin short story. Have you read that? No, I haven't. It's an incredible short story. It's very short. It's worth reading. I'll send you a link after. Um, Please, I'd love to read. But it's sort of uh, she describes a, a, even me telling you this story won't spoil it because it's so beautifully written. Okay. But she describes a paradise and she describes it in great sort of detail, allowing for your own personal preferences of how you would define paradise, you know. You might, this, mm. you might think this sounds a little bit too, you know, self-indulgent, but there's also this, you know, in this paradise. Uh, from every angle she describes this paradise and then she describes a room in which a child is kept in torment and everyone has to visit this room at some point and see this child in torment and know that their paradise relies on this suffering. And how people react to that, whether they go back to their ordinary lives, whether they rage, whether they weep, or whether they walk away, is this is this profound part of the story, right? So I think to a certain extent it is that. This I they're relying on this, on us then to consent to being <laughs> to those people being used for this purpose, even if it were true. Even if it is true that this suffering stops other people dying in boats, is that a price we're willing to pay as a society? Is that a, a moral cost? Are we willing to torture people to discourage other people, even if it does work? And I think that's a yeah. question we sort of have to ask ourselves as a society, but it is never framed in that way because as we were talking about before, our government is like real good at framing shit up. But also like it... <sighs> It's it's so aggravating because I, f- I feel like it's a false it's a false thing. Like the the people are still coming. It's it's one of these things where they did that to stop people from coming on boats to Australia from um, Southeast Asia, and these are people from all over the world who've kind of escaping asylum, are seeking asylum. And what they did was in order to stop the boats from coming to Australia, the government changed, and Scott Morrison, now the Prime Minister of the day. Um, back then he was minister for, um, I don't know, uh, immigration, um, I think. He 
made it illegal to report on those boats arriving. So by stopping the reporting of the boats, he could then claim he stopped the boats, but the boats were still coming. Because these boats haven't been recorded. This is the whole thing. They're like framing this shit up. Technically, we have no records of any boats arriving since we instituted this policy. Exactly. So So this is the whole thing. This is like constant with this government by pushing like you said, moving the goalpost, changing it's so the story. Smarmy. It's so And it's so like, awful oh. and full of lies. Like it's just, it's the worst kind of people you want leading a country, um, leading this country. Oh. And no one is, no, even Labor. Like I interviewed Chris Bowen the other day um, and he, he was talking about Chris Bowen as the, shadow environment minister he was, he was kind of giving overtures about what he would like to see at cop and then saying in one breath saying oh yeah like oh yeah we should we should also put um politics aside and 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 uh, and and really work on this together and then the next sentence he said but don't vote for the greens because the greens have no plan for just job transition and of course the greens have a plan for job just just job transition they've had it for years they've been working on this longer than anybody else and it's like oh my god like you you don't care about this you actually have no you actually in your in your the words you choose to speak you are not even choosing the right words to speak to show that you have moral leadership on this and so I feel like when it comes to climate change, full circle back to this, is that those independents are our best shot in the next eight months. Between now and May, we have to find those independents. We have to you know, agitate for change, find those independents, attach those independents to those four key electorates and get change made in Australia. Yeah, at this point, I am basically a single-issue voter. And I think <laughs> I think that there are others of our generation, particularly of our generation, who are the same. I would vote for Clive Palmer if he had <laughs> you wouldn't. If he had a decent fucking climate change plan that I believed he would follow through on with like uh, proper yeah, okay. commitments. Of course, so the whole he, reason uh, why- for those who are listening who don't know who Clive Palmer is, he's a, a bloated billionaire with a dinosaur park uh, who loves throwing his hat in the ring of Australian politics, presumably mm. because he hasn't got enough to do with his billions of dollars. Well, more than that, he's throwing his hat in the ring of politics because he has a huge, huge interest in the Galilee Basin in Queensland, which is part of his Waratah mine. It's a coal mine that hasn't been started yet, but infrastructure is being built to in order to start a coal mine. So the, the train line is being built from the coast to inland where there is this massive amount of coal that is still in the ground and yet to be burnt. Lots of people have interest in it. Big mining company um, called Adani, a big energy company in India called Adani has an interest in it. Uh, Clive Palmer also has interest in it. So he is, he is this election, as well as the election before, he's running these spoiler campaigns. He's running people. He has enough money to run people and buy ads in every electorate in Australia to dilute the vote of Labor so that he can secure an LNP um, election uh, win so that he can continue to uh, extract the coal from this gigantic place. So this is... Again, when we you talk- don't have to be the fastest runner. You just have to stab someone else in the knee while the bears are coming. And it, it's, it's so and it's so interesting. Like this is... This is this the whole, whole thing with Clive Palmer. Like this is this is his thing. He doesn't actually have, he has zero interest of being in Parliament. Zero interest. And so this is <laughs> this is the thing that is sort of the most terrifying um, thing is that Clive is going to run another spoiler campaign and he's going to spend sixty million dollars doing it, which is what he spent last time on the election. So if he spends sixty million dollars, that's okay because he makes six billion dollars off the back end. Yes, uh, our American listeners are suddenly extremely envious, envious that $60 million is enough it's, to it's shift, like, yeah. <laughs> shift if you are in Australian politics. If you're, a, if you're an American billionaire who believes in climate action, get in touch with Alice and she can get you in touch with me and I can connect <laughs> you with the right people to help outspend Clive Palmer to run our own election. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because that's, you know, that's the hamburger budget of a minor candidate who's definitely not going to win. In America. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But thankfully, you know, this time in Australia, I feel like we've got our own billionaires who are backing climate action in meaningful ways. So, you know, it, it you know, I, it, at some point, Alice, it's just going to be, you just have to pick a billionaire who you, 
<laughs> like we are already we're already living in this in this world where forget politics, forget Liberal Party or Labor Party or Greens Party. You just pick a billion billionaire you like, and you become a champion for them. <laughs> Well, I mean, this is one of the things I did in my last show, Kronos, which so few people saw because it was only performed live a handful of times, was asking people who their favourite billionaire was. And people have opinions. People are allied with or affiliated with, you know, you think, well, I guess these people are more more powerful than many nations and they are these sort of floating kings, unelected unelected Uh, rulers. And so who are some some of the ones people brought up? Who, Who are the people that people like? Well, you always have your Musk fans, sure, uh, yeah, because okay. he represents to people a sort of a the technocratic overthrow of the smug, uh-huh. educated um, arts types who have been ruling our culture for so long. Because, okay. in, in part, because he does say stupid things, he is not socially um, suave, and he'll often tweet something dumb or say something dumb. Or he smokes weed little, on podcasts. Yeah, he does this slightly. Um, you know, he represents this engineering class, this technocratic class that's on the rise against the kind of smug liberal uh, class. So there's people who really like him uh, for being what he is. A a lot of Gates fans, although Gates has lost credit recently uh, Mm. since his divorce, a lot of... yes. A lot of people were realising that what they liked about Bill Gates was Melinda Gates. Um, (laughs) Yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of Bezos fans. Uh, and yeah. the occasional very obscure billionaire fan, which I always enjoyed when somebody came well, up be- with, like, just a billionaire who's not in a, in the public eye. I think Bezos, just on Bezos on a second and tangent here, I think Bezos is all about Bezos and he's just he's just all in it for himself. And nothing more self-evident when he came down from his spaceship and said, I want to thank all every every single Amazon employee and everyone, every single Amazon customer because I, I did this because you because of you you paid for this yeah i think that's the phrase you paid for this you paid for this they're like yep we sure did pay for that yep i could i could feel it i could feel absolutely feel that any small business that has gone out of uh, you know any small business that's gone out of business in the last 10 years because they've been undercut by amazon deliberately lowering prices to a beyond a sustainable rate in order to cut you out of the market you paid for paid this. for it. <laughs> paid for your three seconds in space, throwing skittles at each other and taking selfies without even looking out the window in order to come back down and say, "I've had a transformational experience." And now Bezos has left the company to effectively go ahead and spend all of his time doing lawsuits against NASA because NASA have chosen SpaceX rather than Blue Blue Origin to <laughs> to fund their moon mission. He's like. Hey man, we we built a we built a rocket too. Where's our contract? It's like, dude, your rocket went up and down. Like, you know, SpaceX has been in this game for a long time. They've got a is a lot more serious. Anyway, they're much more likely to be lithium mining in the stars sooner than you are, and that's what we're interested (laughs) in right now. (laughs) Exactly. So I'm I'm putting my my chips currently um, side, you know, behind Mike Cannonbrooks. Uh, So like, that's that's my billionaire. I like I love Mike. I like everything he's done. I like him on Twitter. I like I like his push for renewables. I like his push for climate action. I like his no nonsense takedown of of bullshit politics. Uh, uh, he's just he's like he's my hero right now. Like he's he's the guy with deep pockets who can stand up and go, "You guys are called you guys are bullshit," and here's why you're bullshit. And I can tell you this because I've got twenty five billion dollars in the bank. So when we have to start <laughs> flying flags outside our homes to represent which billionaire we support in the billionaire wars, that's yours. I've got an Atlassian flag flying outside <laughs> my window. And also Mike DMs me. So you know whatever. So where can people find you online, Dan? Uh, everywhere there's internet, you will find me. So just look me up. <laughs> I am, I'm terrified I'm, because all of my conversations now are through podcasts that in real life I'm going to start saying goodbye to people by saying, so where can people find you online? Uh, yeah, that, that, I'm going to just say that to Uber drivers as you, as you leave, their, <laughs> leave their car. Um, yeah, uh, at Daniel Litch everywhere and follow me and also sign up to my podcast, arationalfear.com, uh, and you will absolutely see your favourite person, Alice Fraser, on pretty much, I would say, you know, at least a fifth of those podcasts. I love, uh, I love doing Irrational Alice's- Fear. It's so much fun. <laughs> yeah, she manages to fit it in with all the other 15 other podcasts she's got to do each week. So, uh, yeah. Uh, Alice is, uh, is on those podcasts and in 
So for, for many, many years. So there's a there's you know a whole bunch of Australian politics you can catch up on with the uh, Irrational Fear podcast. Thank you so much for having tea with me. My pleasure.